Hey everyone, David Bowden here. Before we start the show, we have a special announcement from the team here at Spoken Gospel. As we approach our summer film block, we're filming our final introductions for our whole project on the Bible, including books of the Bible like the book of Revelation and Chronicles, and it's going to be an amazing time. And we are almost finished funding our need for this film block, and we have about $30,000 left to cross the finish line. And we are asking you, our podcast listeners, to help make this possible. So please consider supporting our mission by visiting the Spoken Gospel website, clicking on donate and contributing what you can. Whether you choose to donate once or monthly, we're so grateful for your support. Okay, now on with the show. Welcome to the Spoken Gospel podcast. Spoken Gospel is a nonprofit dedicated to the idea that every part of the Bible, Old Testament and New, is about Jesus. And this podcast is our experiment to publicly test that belief. Every episode, hosts David Bowden and Seth Stewart work through a biblical text to see how it helps us see and savor Jesus. Let's jump in. Well, hey there. Welcome to the Spoken Gospel Podcast. I'm David. Seth, how are you today? I feel interrupty. You feel, you're feeling interrupty today? Yeah, I'm oh, just no. ready to jump in oh, no. at all, all sorts of random moments. You've been, have you been inspired by the the uh, false conflict of the, uh, between Israel oh, so and inspired. Reuben Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh? But more so <laughs> by the excellent puns that I heard from you before walking into this podcast meeting. Oh, and I yeah. would just want you to make sure that you share those with our podcast okay, audience. Okay, all so right. So let me, let me set you up okay. real, real quick. Okay. Uh, who? What kind of man was Boaz before he met Ruth? Oh, well, Boaz was ruthless. <laughs> Nailed it. <laughs> what was the other one you said? Uh, who's the biggest comedian in the Bible or the best comedian in oh, the Bible? Yes. It was Samson because he brought the house down. That's so bad. It's so know. bad. It's, like, it's worse the second time I heard it. I thought it'd be funnier. <laughs> my <laughs> favorite one, though, my favorite one is uh, who's the worst servant of God in the Old Testament? It's Moses. He broke all the Ten Commandments at once. Because he, <laughs> he threw them on the, on the ground. <laughs> anyway, there you go. <laughs> there you go, guys. Yeah, there, there it was. It was that was worth it. That was worth it. That was but, worth it. Um, today oh. we're in Joshua 22 to 24. 20, yeah, 20, 20, 24 to... Tw- wait, 24 to 20... No, 22 <laughs> to 24. You were right. We are so ready for this podcast. We are so ready. Uh, this is the uh, Transjordan tribes yes. going, uh, the soldiers from the Transjordan tribes going back home, and Joshua's final speech to Israel, just like Moses' final speech mm-hmm. uh, to Israel as well. And we're finishing Joshua and tonight. we're finishing Joshua. Yeah. That's the whole thing. Yes. So uh, we just finished the land allotments. Uh, so everybody has been given their marching orders to say, where they will live and what land remains to be conquered. And so Joshua sends them out and tells them to go conquer the remaining land and then dwell in it. And um, then we were given the uh, rules for the cities of refuge, the establishment of the cities of refuge and the allotments for the Levites, which we talked about last week. And then now 
uh, there's one tribe left remaining to go take their land, and that those are those on the east of the Jordan, outside yeah. the quote-unquote promised land proper. So if you remember all the way back to, this was in Numbers. Numbers. When Moses came up to the Jordan River, and the king Og mm-hmm. of Bashan, and si- or si- Sihon. Sihon. Sihon yeah. and Og of Bashan mm-hmm. were in that land, they win the battle mm-hmm. against Og and Sihon. And three, two and a half tribes say because they have so many cows yep. and sheep and goats, they wanted to live on that side of the land as their inheritance from God, not on the other side of the Jordan. Right. Back then, they thought it was a sign of mistrust. It, there was a misunderstanding. There was a misunderstanding yeah, back what, then. Yeah, what Moses thought was happening was a repeat of the first time they tried to go into the promised land and they were so afraid that they didn't enter, but that was not the case. And the people said, no, 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 no. We're actually more faithful than you think we are. Yep. We are going to go in and fight on your behalf for land that we won't even take over. Yes. And then as once the victory is won, then we'll come back across the Jordan again and dwell here on the east side of the Jordan. Yes. So it was a misunderstanding, right, between Israel's leader and the two and a half tribes of the Transjordan, the east side of the of the Jordan, uh, that resulted in the east side Jordan tribes uh, being seen as more faithful than they thought. Yeah, and yep. what's just really funny yeah. is that the sa- history will repeat itself. <laughs> it's the exact same <laughs> scenario with different plot points. With different plot points. Yeah. So again, like just like in that first story, Israel was largely obedient at that time, mm-hmm. and then you they thought... Uh, Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh were being disobedient. And now here, we're told the same thing again. You have kept all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you and have obeyed my voice in all that I've commanded you. And that's Joshua talking to the Transjordan tribes. Yes, he's like, obedience seems to be the reigning factor of the day. Yes, so now go and take your inheritance as Moses promised. Travel back across the Jordan and take the land that Moses promised you now that you have come across the Jordan and fought the battle for Israel, now go back and rest. Yes. So they yep. go back yep. and they go back to where their families were and mm-hmm. their cattle were. Who? And yep. they but before, the but before they cross the Jordan, mm-hmm. before they cross the Jordan, they do something that no one was expecting. They build an altar of, of imposing size. They build a huge altar that is a replica of the altar in the tabernacle. Now this, which was strictly forbidden in the law. Like you were not supposed to yeah. make a replica. There was only one altar. You weren't supposed to make. And and what are altars for? They're for sacrificing. Mm-hmm. And there were multiple laws against making sacrifices somewhere other than at the altar. Yes. And so, so it's bad. It's yeah. It's it looks it looks real bad. Real bad. Um. And they do it on Israel's side yes. of the of the of the river yeah. border, which means not it's, their side, right? Which means it looks like they are. Uh, like poisoning Israel's side of the land. So if God's wrath falls, mm-hmm. like it did uh, against, like uh, at the Battle of Ai, which they, mm-hmm. it gets referenced in this story, mm-hmm. it's gonna it's gonna crush Israel, all of Israel, not necessarily the Transjordan side, because the the sin, the altar, is on their side. Yes, and yeah. so they build this, and mm-hmm. then they go, and then they word. go back, go back into their land, and then word spreads yep. that there's this false or this seemingly false altar mm-hmm. on their side built by the tribes uh, who have had a misunderstanding in, in, the, in the past. past. <laughs> so all the people of Israel, mm-hmm. that's the phrase they use, all the people of Israel, the whole congregation of Israel, go 
to Shiloh to make war right. against Gad, Reuben, and Manasseh. Well, they, they send uh, emissaries. So they send Joshua, Eleazar, and 10 tribal leaders. Well, verse 12, or and when Phineas, the people sorry. of Israel heard of it, the whole assembly of the people of Israel gathered at Shiloh to make war against them. And then, oh, then they, they sent. Then they yes. sent. So it's like, yeah. it's a big moment. It's a big moment. And there's a couple of reasons why it should be a big moment. Mm. So one... Uh, as you said it before, this has already happened. Yeah. When you see seeming unfaithfulness in the camp, not just one person dies, a yeah. whole bunch of people are implicated in that one sin. We saw that at AI with mm-hmm. Aiken, and Aiken gets brought up here. Yep. But also more um, like uh, yeah. saliently, like yeah. more like importantly for this one, back in Numbers 25, Balaam, when he was brought into the camp, uh, also encouraged uh, idolatry in intermarrying with uh, women who worshiped other gods. Right, which is an exact sin that Joshua brings up in chapter 23. That's exactly <laughs> yeah, right. So it's like, that uh, is a very heightened thing And right now. it's verse tw- 17 of 22. It says, have we not had enough of the sin of Peor, which <laughs> yep. is what happened with Balaam, right. uh, from which uh, even yet we have not yet cleansed ourselves right. and for which there came a plague upon the entire congregation of the Lord. Mm-hmm. So the idea is, because you're sinning in this one way, this isn't just going to affect you, Manasseh, mm-hmm. or Gad, or Reuben. All of us are implicated with it. Right. That's why the whole congregation's there. That's why all the leaders of uh, uh, Joshua, Phineas, yep. and Eliezer are, are all there. And Phineas is important because he was the one who ended the plague, the plague back in Numbers 25. That's right. The consequence, we should name that, the consequence of idolatry back in number 25 was this plague broke out. People were dying. 24,000 people died. And then Phineas, he drives a javelin into the belly of the sinful party. Yes. And that the and his death ends the plague. So what they're thinking is, as soon as sun comes up tomorrow and God sees this altar here that we did nothing about, a plague is going to break out. So we need to go and make war mm-hmm. against uh, Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh and Otherwise, the, kill them. It's, Otherwise, it's going to be a repeat. And what's really interesting, too, was back in Numbers 25, we're told that it's the zeal of Phineas yes. that saves them. So like this really intense... I, when I read it, the whole congregation, what? Why is everyone here mm, so fast? Yeah. So no, no, we've already been told once before that it's the zeal of Phineas, like mm. the zeal for the purity of the land is what saved Israel mm-hmm. previously. Yep. So now the whole of Israel has essentially learned the lessons. Mm. They've learned the lesson of Balaam. They've learned the lesson of Achan. It's like, no, when there's when idolatry seems to be spreading, the whole congregation must come out, face it, and stop it as yes. soon as possible. Okay. I have to put a pin right here. Okay. We were not planning on stopping here. But but there's a NT Wright. Mm-hmm. Uh, has done some really interesting work on the lineage, uh, or not like the spiritual lineage of, of Phineas, or okay. he calls him Finhas when Finhas. he pronounces it. I like Finhas. Finhas. And, um, and, and he talks about how a lot of the zealots, so you brought up the, the, mm-hmm. the zeal, so a lot of the zealots in Jesus' day saw themselves as new Finhases. New Phineas's. Interesting. And it was their job to kill the Romans, to put the javelin into the hearts of the Romans and even like the Sadducees who were, you know, hedonistic. Uh, that's not, that word's not everybody knows that word. Yeah. They were, they were syncretists. They were like, yeah. they were Jews that were basically Greek. Yeah. You know, they were Roman Jews who had sold themselves out. They were sellouts. There we go. Found it. Sellouts. Uh, anyway. And so they were hedonistic like. Hedonistic. Yeah. Sellouts. Or Hellenistic. 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 Which means Greek. Uh, anyway, and so these zealots, uh, some people think Peter was a, was a part of this group. 
uh, the Apostle Peter. Uh, and they would just go around killing people and raiding bands. Uh, Barabbas might have been one of these people, the, the person that was freed at Jesus's mm-hmm. um, trial. Yep. Anyway, uh, and so it's just interesting that you have this spiritual lineage of Phineas uh, still rampant in the time of Jesus. And they're trying to fix um, the problem of Roman oppression and God's seeming lack of presence with his people by killing. And they mm. are the camp of Israel riding out to the Jordan to fix the problem with violence. And what's interesting is there's a misunderstanding about who the true faithful one of Israel is in Jesus. He he is actually doing something good and they want to kill him as the new Phineas. And, they, and so they pin him on the tree to end the curse of God against people because they are thinking he's blasphemous. So so in this so you're saying like within the within the Pharisees there within was the Pharisee a- tradition there was this desire to clean everything up. Which is why they want to stone Jesus, which they, right. why they wanted to stone the adulterous w- woman. Like because they're, they're like, trying to keep Israel clean so that God's favor would come back to Israel. Hmm. And so by putting Jesus on the tree, they they actually did what Israel's hand was held back from doing here in this story. They actually went forward with the violence. So in the, like Manasseh and Reuben and Gad were spared, but Jesus was not. And the, the misunderstanding of who he was and the violence acted out against him uh, ironically ended up like being the very thing that healed the land instead of bringing its curse. Like God uses the spiritual lineage of Phineas yeah. and it, in God an ironic uses way, the misunderstanding and the spiritual lineage of Phineas to like have history repeat itself again. Yes. But in, and, and just like in this story, we'll see in a moment where the misunderstanding is resolved by no violence. Yes, that's right. In um, Jesus, mm-hmm. the misunderstanding will be resolved through him being speared through. Yes. Wow. Anyway, I hadn't made that connection until just now. That's but crazy. Yeah. Anyway, thanks, uh, N.T. Wright, Tom and Wright. T- Tom Wright. Uh, man, that's... I'm pretty sure that was from the autobiography, like or no, the, the biography of Paul that he did. Yes. I'm pretty sure it was from that book. Yes, if you I haven't read, read that one. I'm pretty sure that was it. Um, anyway. Yeah. Anyway. That's so, really cool, actually. Anyway, I had to like, get that's that That's really in. cool. The yeah. only other thing I want to add here that I'd noticed that I thought was kind of interesting before we get to the resolution here was that there seems to be this weird, like disconnect between mm. the people on the east side of the Jordan from the people on the west side of the Jordan. Yes. So on ver- in verse 11, it says, um, Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh have built the altar at the frontier of the land of Canaan mm-hmm. in the region about the Jordan on the side that belongs to the people, people of, of Israel. Israel. But wait, wait, wait. Both sides belong uh-huh. to the people of Israel, right? And then again in verse 19, but now if the land in your possession is unclean, pass over to the Lord's land where the Lord's tabernacle uh-huh. is. So there apparently seemed to be like even on the ten, the ten and a half, nine and a half tribes uh-huh. on the right on the right side of the land, <laughs> there was like a misunderstanding about their geographical proximity to the temple was somehow made them better yes. than the people on the other side of the exactly land. Exactly right. Which so I was like, what's happening there? Yes. Is that significant? It is, is significant. It, okay. it's, it's what drives the whole story. Okay. And so, what what was the impetus? Why, why did Reuben Gad and the half tribe of Manasseh decide to build the altar? It's because they thought that at some point in the future they would try to come and worship God in the tabernacle and the spiritual elite people who are calling this land true Israel and this is the Lord's land and we are the Lord's people, you don't you are second class and now you are kept out mm. from the tabernacle. So that's why that's verse, why they built it. So verse twenty chapter twenty two, verse twenty five 
I highlighted this verse, trying to like puzzling out what you're like, what you're saying really clearly. For the Lord has made the Jordan a boundary between us and you. That's right. Uh, you people of Reuben and people of Gad. Uh, you, oh, so uh, verse 24 would be more uh-huh. helpful to go up to. Uh, they built it in fear yes. that in time to come, your children might say to our children, what have you to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? For the Lord has made the Jordan a boundary between us. For you people of Reuben and you people of Gad, you have no portion of the Lord. Yes. So your children might take, make our children cease to worship the Lord. Yes. They're afraid they're of afraid. future idolatry. Yes. And, and that's that probably spiritual dr- elitism yes. that they're already sensing. That's it. They're already feeling the fact that the nine and a half tribes on the west side of the Jordan are spiritually better than them. And that there was something poisonous in the water of Israel that had this division in it. And and this Jordan boundary is really significant. I just want to highlight it here because it's going to come up in something Jesus does in his own ministry. The Jordan boundary is extremely significant because that is the place that back in Numbers 13, they, you know, they're they're trying they're gonna go into the land and they're gonna fail. They come up to it again with, you know, Peor and everything like that that we've talked about. And then it's it's parted and it's a whole thing and the ark stands in it and they build an altar, like a, an Ebenezer yep. at the, on the shore of it. Like the Ebene or the Ebenezer, the Jordan is the boundary line of the promised land. And so to be outside of it is in a sense to be outside the promised land of God. Unless that was always God's plan to have his promised land extend past the boundaries he's setting for Israel in the land allotments we just read. Yeah. Like, so we just had land allotments. Like, here are the hard lines for everything. But then here in the story, we're seeing that already Reuben, Gad, and the half tribe of Nassau are taking God's land and presence out into the rest of the world beyond the boundaries of the promised land. And so they're actually being more faithful than we think they are. They're not second class. They're frontiersmen for the gospel. They're, they're like the frontline missionaries. Yeah. And they're, and that's what Israel was supposed to be was this spreading out of the land of Israel and Israel's already, um, falling back into, um, nationalism and patriotism and elitism and Zionism, which is something that will plague them in the future, where they think that because they live in the land with the temple, they're better than everybody else. Man. And so it's like, that's already plaguing them before, before it, it even happens. starts. It makes me rethink even like some of the ways, like the Jew-Gentile division in the early church. It's like, oh, that's like that heritage of Phineas, mm-hmm. which was good in one way. It is good. Like, yeah. like is corrupted yes. through the course of Israel's history where they like discount people of lesser, I, I guess I don't even know. It's like like who they consider lesser spiritually. I mm-hmm. mean that's 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 the easiest way to say. It. Yes. Like, oh, these were sub Israelite Israel. Think about the way they view... they don't live in the real on the right side right. of the Jordan. I mean, River. think about the way they view Samaritans. You yeah. Know, in the in the New Testament. Yeah. So anyway, Interesting. that's okay. what's happening here and why that's important. It like this spiritual elitism. And the fear that they will be ostracized once they cross the Jordan, or at least their children will be in future generations, is what drives this conflict. Um, so then, yeah. that's what happens. One, then, one other interesting oh, yeah, narrative yeah. thing here is uh, you'll remember when we were recounting the story from Numbers, um, uh, the the Transjordan tribes offer to go in and fight in the land to win um, territories that they won't actually live in. And then they'll come back across the Jordan and dwell in the, their cities outside Canaan. Yep. Uh, so they're doing something selfless for the people of Israel. That selflessness is actually repeated to them here by the Israelites. So they're not, 
the the people inside the land are actually doing something good here. They say like, look, don't if you're afraid of us keeping you out, don't go across the Jordan. We'll give up some of our inheritance here for you. Live with us. We'd rather you take more of our land here in this land of Jordan uh, or this land of Canaan than build this altar. And so they're yeah. willing to give up some of their inheritance to these other tribes rather than like see idolatry exactly thrive in Israel. Yeah. So it's like you have this, uh, I just think like in both stories, the stories in numbers where the Transjordan tribes are willing to fight for the, the people who will live in Canaan. And then here where the people who live in Canaan are willing to give up some of their inheritance for the Transjordan tribes. You have this act of sacrificial giving of land that belongs to you. You're willing to give to somebody who doesn't deserve it. And I'm like, I love that picture of the gospel mm-hmm. where it's like Jesus earns the territory of heaven for us. He earned it for himself. It's his, it's his right. And he says, even though you didn't fight this fight or even though I fought it for you here, come dwell where you don't deserve. It's just like a cool little yeah. thing that's happening. Uh, the way the story is resolved yes. is that essentially they say, okay, the reason we built it yeah. uh, wasn't to offer sacrifices on it, but because we were afraid of this spiritual elitism that we've already sensed. And then in verse 26, it said, so we said, let us build an altar, not for burnt offerings, not for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you, between our generations after us, that uh, that we do perform the service of the Lord in his presence with our burnt offerings and sacrifices and peace offerings, so that your children will not say to our children, you have no portion of the Lord. Mm-hmm. The idea was, wasn't that it was a place of sacrifice, but it was more like what Joshua built. It's a stone of witness. It yes. bears witness to God's promises to them on the other side of the Jordan River. Mm-hmm. It's they're still recipients of God's blessing, God's covenant, God's sacrificial system, God's land. Like they're still part of the family. And the reason they built it on the other side of the Jordan River isn't just the, so they could see it from their side, but so that Israel would know when they crossed over that they're still in God's territory, even though they're outside the right boundaries uh-huh. Uh-huh. i'm doing air quotes that nobody can see on like, <laughs> like right boundaries within jordan yes that's what and then they accept that yep. as an explanation it's a it's a it's a uh a gateway for israel uh on the other side of the jordan to and it's an it's important that it's a replica of the altar because what they're saying is we won't offer sacrifices here but we want it we want you to see that our entry into the land is based on the same grounds, the same religious grounds that your continued involvement in the land is based on, the altar and the tabernacle. So when we come in, we are looking to the replica of the altar um, as our one sure passage into God's presence in the same way that you look at the real altar as your one sure access into God's presence of the tabernacle. So they're both looking to the same sacrifice, but from different sides. Yeah, and yeah. So that's, and that's, and then they... Accept that explanation. It seems good in their eyes, yep. verse 30. Uh, and they said, okay, today we know that the Lord is in our midst and the Lord is in your midst. And like the con- the misunderstanding is resolved. Yes. Uh, yeah. And it's really important then the way it ends. And um, verse 34, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad called the altar, capital W, witness. For, they said, it is a witness between us that the Lord is God. And so, like, that word witness is going to come up again, and uh, it's just going to be important. We'll talk about it later. Um, An interesting thing about this, as we try to see Jesus here, is um, Jesus' ministry also centers around the Jordan River. 
Yeah, he's baptized in the Jordan River. Yes, and then after he's baptized in the Jordan River, where does he go? He goes into the wilderness. He goes east of the Jordan, yeah. just like the Transjordan tribes. Mm. So the first place Jesus goes after being the altar, after saying, I am going to be the after altar. After the presence of God descends exactly. on him. Like and after John looks at him and says, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. He is the final altar of God. He goes to the boundary between the good Israelites and the not so good Israelites, mm-hmm. supposedly. Right. And then who does he go to first? The ones that are looked down on by yes. the spiritual elite. That's right. Yeah. And then he comes, then he goes and gathers them in a sense, fights their spiritual battle for them in his temptation against Satan, mm-hmm. and then crosses the Jordan again and comes into the land of Israel. And so it's this picture that Jesus is going to be the final once for all altar for all nations. Mm-hmm. And in the same way that Israel was supposed to move from Canaan through the Jordan boundary out into the world, Jesus shows that he will be the one who moves from God's presence out through the boundaries of heaven and into all the nations. It puts a totally different spin on Jesus's interactions with the spiritually prideful. Yes. Because it's like, man, oh, the Pharisees are spiritually prideful. They think that they're better than everybody else because mm. they're, uh, they follow the law better than everyone else, or at right. least they follow their own versions of the law better than everyone else. But okay, that's, Partly true, yeah, mm. but it's also part of like an endemic issue within Israel itself. Yeah, like Jesus is doing battle with hundreds and hundreds of years of spiritual pride. Yeah, and I know, like, I just don't think I've had like this grand like category, like this co- almost cosmic mm. category for or history's long category for systemic pride against people yeah. you think are spiritually inferior to you. It's interesting that you say that because, I mean, I think if you got a pulse check from most people in the street and be like, how would you describe Christians? A lot of them would probably say proud. Yeah. You know, bigoted. They look down on me. Yeah. You know. Uh, I had a, a woman in my neighborhood. She, like, didn't want us to know that she, like, her and her husband, like, were, or her and her fiance were splitting up because she was afraid oh. that we would judge her. I'm like, gosh, I'm like, that man, sucks. that sucks. Yeah. Yeah, uh, and but it's interesting that God has known this about the human heart from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Uh, when he right after in Deuteronomy, early on in Deuteronomy, after leaning into the fact that he chose Israel above all the nations, he makes sure to double down on why, and he says, "I didn't choose you because you were more numerous or more powerful or more righteous. I chose you because you were the weakest." And this gets repeated in the New Testament that it's in our weakness he is made strong right? That he chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. So like if you're a Christian, the badge, the title Christian should be a mantle of weakness and need. When people say Christianity is a crutch, you should be the first one to say no, because a crutch says that I actually have one good leg. You know, it's a wheelchair. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, the Christianity is a wheelchair. It's a it's a yeah. iron lung. I need it to survive that we are Christians because we know we are the least. And we know we are in the most need. And that yeah. should drive spiritual humility, not pride. And even the way that the Pharisees would always, like the the Israelites, the Israelite prostitutes, the Israelites tax collectors, the Israelite uh, beggars, the Israelite mm. lepers, they were always less than. Mm. It's like that idea of separating Israel into two different categories. Yeah. And then Jesus leaving the Jordan River to gather the trans-Jordan tribes, mm-hmm. the least desirable Israelites is functionally his entire ministry, not just that wilderness wanderings. It's mm-hmm. like 
he is baptized. He becomes the altar of God. And then he gathers disenfranchised, looked down upon, marginalized Israel. Yeah. The ones that are considered spiritually inferior and might be. And it might right. actually be spiritually inferior right. yes. because of their sin, yeah. because of their... I mean, it's a question people ask, like, was was the were the Transjordan tribes right in numbers to stay outside? Was that sinful or, like, was that wrong? It's kind of suspect, you know? Mm-hmm. It's a misunderstanding, at least. Yeah. And so it's like, maybe they maybe there was something animating that. Maybe they were a little afraid. I don't know. Yeah. But it's like, uh, I think what, what's, what I want to, like, lean into as we land this plane is I'm sure... A great number of people listening to this do feel or have felt spiritual spiritually inferior mm-hmm. um i know that's something like my mom talks about wrestling with that like whenever we, she was a pastor's wife and yet she always looked down on she always like was was act, like treated like she just wasn't the yeah. best pastor's wife you yeah. know she didn't wear the right clothes or she let her kids mm-hmm. go to public school or whatever yeah. and she was just maligned for those things erica never experienced those your wife personally my wife yeah. but she um was always afraid of experiencing those yes. things. Yeah. And like that, just that external pressure was yeah. exhausting. And so uh, what I wanna say to all of us who have felt that way or are currently feeling that way is that Jesus is the altar that has borne all of the shame, inferiority, weakness, um, ostracizement that you currently feel. And his death and resurrection stand on whatever invisible borders or real borders and boundaries you are bumping up against in your life, his death and resurrection stand as a witness to you that you are the Lord's and that you are not inferior, that you are loved and included and adopted and bought, that you can enter into God's presence with full confidence because Jesus stands at the boundary for you. Yeah. I'm also thinking about the other way that goes for those of us who are more prone to be like Phineas Mm. than like the inferior ones. That's good, yeah. It's like maybe your righteous zeal Mm. towards those who you consider theologically inferior or less nuanced or sophisticated. Not as pure, not as good. Might actually just be your misunderstanding. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like, and the witness stands against you as well. Because the zeal with which you condemn others is the zeal with which the Lord will condemn you mm-hmm. as well. Yeah, well, that's what that's, that's what, what the Jesus al- says. That's yeah. what the that's what yeah the that's what Jesus says, and that's what the altar the the what the that's what the altar does. Mm-hmm. Like it's a symbol of all of God's commands, and not even the spiritually proud can live up to it. Yeah. Well, I think about the irony here that Israel. Uh, inside Canaan um, was angry at the Transjordan tribe for building the altar, but it was their superiority. It was their own sin that caused the fear in the Transjordan tribe to begin with. Uh, I'm thinking about like, um, mm. I'm trying to think if this actually happened or if it's just like a really good illustration. Yeah. I can't remember, but it's like, because uh, I would probably tend to be more like Phineas right. than, than the Transjordan tribe. Mm-hmm. And so I'm like, oh, I need to gut check myself here because it's like, uh, I could think of like, I'm a community group leader, right? And let's say someone in our community group um, was struggling with the fact that they just really haven't been attending lately, you know? And so they finally, and, and you know, they've missed a week and they miss another week and they miss another week. And I come to them like, hey, what's wrong? What's wrong? Like, why have you... Don't you know that your soul's in jeopardy? Right, <laughs> yeah. Why have you apostatized? <laughs> you know, what are you doing? And they're like, oh, I was, I missed one week and I was afraid that you would look down on me 
be, uh, when I come when I came the second week, and I just was afraid. I wanted to avoid the shame. Yeah. And so it's like we need to understand how sometimes the Phineases in the group can be complicit in the fear that animates what we perceive as sin in the Transjordan tribes of the group. It's just yeah. an interesting it double is. sword of sin. It really is. <laughs> yeah. Which is played out in Israel on a national scale. Yeah. It plays out in our own personal lives. It's like, I wonder how much of this uh, like religious zeal meeting spiritual shame and fear creates a lot of the misunderstandings in our personal relationships, our marriages, our friendships, our churches. Anyway, yeah. it's crazy. And then, then how does Jesus use his actual spiritual superiority? Like, oh. he is... He is spiritually better he, than he's us. spiritually better than <laughs> he us. He lived in the real Canaan. You know, oh, what's ironic here, too, is the altar that was in the tabernacle, right? Yeah. Was an actual, was a copy itself. But it was a copy of the heavenly altar, the real one. Where Jesus came from. Right. And right. so, like, Israel itself had a copy of an altar. Yeah. And they're judging somebody else's copy of an altar and being like, oh, our copy's better. That's <laughs> funny. Anyway, it's like their spiritual superiority is based on something erroneous. <laughs> it's based on Jesus. Yeah. And when Jesus comes, he had every right to look down on the spiritually yes. inferior copy of the altar that Jesus set up in the temple. That's right. But what does he do? He allows them to spear him through like Phineas yep. so that the spiritually proud and the spiritually inferior, when they humble themselves to him, might live in his land forever. Yep. His death stands as a witness to both the spiritually inferior and the spiritually proud. That's so good. There it is. All right. Let's talk about Joshua's speech. Okay, so Joshua, just like Moses before he died, Joshua is going to give a speech to all of Israel. Yeah. Can I ask you a question? Yeah. A few episodes ago, you asked me a question about time. Okay. And now I have a question for you about time. Continue. The, chapter 23 starts with a long time afterward. Mm. Any idea yeah. what's happening there? Well, I had two thoughts <laughs> okay. about this because if you go back to chapter 21, um, it says the same thing. Oh. It's a, or, or 20, I think. Uh, it says like, a long time afterwards. Yes, I remember that. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. It's like right before the, the land allotment. So maybe it's back like Yeah, it's back 13. quite a ways. But yes, you're right. Uh, it's the, it's the same phrase. That's when you asked me the question. Yes. Now, Josh was old and advanced in years. And the Lord said to him, you are old and advanced in years. Yet there remains very much land So possessed. is it possible that this little Transjordan tribe incident actually happened earlier? You know, like it was it, like... It, yeah, it could be that yeah. it could be that these are asynchronous. And yeah, which would be normal for Hebrew literature. Which would be totally normal. Or it's like, okay, now go back to chapter thirteen. Like chapter yes. thirteen to twenty-three are like a parentheses. Yes. It's like, okay, Joshua was old, and here's what he did when he was old. He allotted all the tribal lands, all the cities of refuge, and he sorted out this thing with uh, the Transjordan tribes. Okay, remember how Joshua was old? Uh huh. Here we are again. Yes. I think that's probably the way to understand that it. Makes that makes sense. That threw me for a loop for a second as it's well. It's just a callback to be like, remember I told you he was old. Let's We're, finish the story. Let's yes. land the plane. Yes. Okay. Exactly I, what's I buy that. That's. I think that's what's happening. It's <laughs> ultimately not that important. <laughs> you know, I was just curious what you thought. But it's. Were. I was like, I, I was thrown by when I read it. I was like, wait a second. I thought he was old a long time ago. And now <laughs> it's even longer. <laughs> He's even older? What happened? <laughs> I think that's what happened. Okay. Uh, yes. So He's well advanced in years. And so Joshua summons all of Israel's leaders, and he basically commissions them uh, to lead the people of God 
um, into this next phase, this like decentralized phase of leadership after his death. Mm-hmm. And he repeats the very beginning of the book, in verse six, therefore be very strong to keep and do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, mm-hmm. turning that aside from, not, not turning aside, not turning aside from the right or the left. The idea is, I told you to be strong and courageous at the beginning. When we went in to fight all these battles, mm-hmm. you have a lot more battles to face. Be strong, be courageous, fight the wars that the Lord has placed in front of you. Don't neglect what uh, God has already done through your faithfulness. Continue yes. to be faithful. Okay, That's the major note. And he reminds them of all that the Lord has done. Verse 10, one man of you puts to flight 10,000 <laughs> right. since it is the Lord your God who fights for you. Be very careful to love the Lord mm. your God. It's like this final plea for from Joshua to the leaders that are supposed to lead who's to succeed him yes. to follow the example he set right. um, as he dies. And it sounds, and you've already mentioned this, but it sounds eerily similar to the end of Deuteronomy in Moses' final speech. Like eerily similar. All of the same things mm-hmm. that Moses said to Israel as they were going in to take the land, Joshua is now repeating to them as they are now living in the land and taking the rest of the land. Yeah, yes. and he warns them. So it's like, this is what will happen if yep. you remain faithful. God everything will, fight, will be great. Well, everything will be great. But if you disobey the Lord, mm-hmm. fail to love him, worship the gods of the land, the, the, the land will be a snare to you and a trap for you and a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes and you'll perish off the good ground the Lord has given you, verse 13. Mm, yeah. And then again in verse 15, but just as all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you have been fulfilled for you, so the Lord will bring upon you all the evil things until he has destroyed you. So if you transgress the covenant of the Lord. Mm-hmm. So it's like there is a conditionality to this victory they're experiencing. Yes, The Lord will be with you. He will fight for you. Be strong to obey the commands. Be courageous to fight these battles and everything will go well. As soon as you start to trust other gods, you shouldn't expect the same level mm. of victory. Yeah. Uh, why the conditionality? Why the conditionality? Yeah. yeah. Like what? Like why is that such a big deal here in Joshua's speech? I mean, it was a big deal in Moses' speech. Um, that's kind of the way and that's kind of the good news of the book of Joshua. It's like, Mm. when you trust the Lord, he fights your battles. Right. Disproportionately to your effort. (laughs) And disproportionately to your trust. Yeah, it's like, you you like even Jesus, like, faith of a mustard seed, you can move mountains. Like, if you just, like, trust God and walk around a wall, the (laughs) army will be defeated. Like, (laughs) this isn't isn't works-based salvation here. No, it's just like, trust the Lord, and he will do it for you. Yeah. Like, that's the yeah because the the opposite is trusting other gods yes if you trust idols because you've intermarried with pagans Mm -hmm. and you start loving their gods you're gonna start trusting them instead and your trust has gone away from god right yeah and what's and who who is god's like enemy Mm -hmm. other idols right so when you join yourself to other gods you become part of what you've already been destroying right Mm -hmm. like it's Mm -hmm. like if you start like you're going out and destroying idolatry because God wants to destroy idolatry uh-huh. because he's the Lord of all the earth. And as right. soon as you join yourself to other idols, you're on the wrong side of the battle lines. Yeah, now you're becoming what's meant to be destroyed, so you will be destroyed. That's exactly right. Yeah. So don't do that. Yep. Um, that's And that's his warning to the leaders. Yeah. And he repeats that same warning to 
all of Israel back at Shechem. Mm-hmm. So in, in chapter 24? In chapter 24. Yep. So if you remember, Shechem stands between Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. Oh. So that's all the way back in Deuteronomy 24, I And think. it gets repeated in Joshua. We, it gets I, repeated yep. in Joshua. And on one mountain is the mountain of cursing, mm. and one mountain is the mountain of blessing. And there was this whole covenant ceremony where they all shouted the covenant promises that they'll be faithful, they'll live long in the land, that they'll have fruit, and they'll eat trees that they didn't plant, and Mm -hmm. vineyards, they'll drink wine from vineyards they didn't own, and everything would be great. Mm -hmm. And they say amen to all the things on the Mount of Blessing, and then for the Mount of Cursing, but if you disobey, this will happen, and this will happen, and this will happen, and they say amen. Amen, yes. The same thing happens here Mm -hmm. at that same site, Shechem. The covenant is renewed. That yes. same thing is repeated, but in front of all the people. Uh, in between the two covenant ceremonies, in a sense, mm-hmm. with the elders and then with all of Israel, is kind of a repeat of their history. Mm-hmm. That's, yeah. a, that's interesting. It is interesting, but it's also the way covenants are built. Oh, so, that's right. Yeah, so back at Mount Sinai, how did God begin the Ten Commandments? I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. That's exactly right. And most covenants in the ancient Near East began with the... A recounting of the deeds of the king. That's exactly Who right. is now going to impose rules on the vassal of the servants. That's the exactly right. So uh-huh. this repetition of the history not only serves to build Israel's faith as they commit to the Lord... Right, which is like, that's the only category I had for it. But it also, it's like, it's the way... Covenants are yeah, made in, in general. That's good. And so after this long description of, and it's really long, you're like, in in Exodus, it's one line. It's one line, yeah. I brought you to the land of Egypt. Right. Because that was all that had happened, But really. in Deuteronomy, it's really long. It's really long. It's like the first three chapters. And now here, we have another really long, mm-hmm. it's basically a summary of the last hundreds of 40 years yeah. in the wilderness. And it's like, God's been doing a lot of cool things. Mm-hmm. He's bought you. He's given you this land. Oh, actually, it goes all the way back to Abraham. His, oh, his, his, it does. Yeah, yeah, your, your, yeah, yeah. yeah your father Tara, like lived in the land. Of, he was yeah. uh, he was worshiping idols. In t- in, uh, in uh, Oh, that's right. That's an interesting thing since he's talking about not worshiping idols. Mm-hmm. He says, now remember, Abraham, your great, great, great grandfather to whom I made this promise, he used to worship idols and I freed him from that so that he might worship the one true living God. Mm-hmm. Don't go back to the sins uh, like of pre me saving Abraham, like yes, that would be so regressive. Please don't do that. Don't do that. And yeah, they're going. And then it. verse th- fourteen. So this fourteen fifteen might be the most famous passage in Joshua. Oh yes. So after he recounts all the faithfulness of the Lord throughout all of Israel's history, he says, "Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond mm-hmm. the river in Egypt, mm-hmm. and serve the Lord. And if it's evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, like mm. if you don't like the idea of serving the Lord, choose. Choose. Choose this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Yeah. That's the famous line from the book of Joshua. Yes. It's Joshua affirming and buying into the Lord's covenant. It's his declaration of faith over the people of Israel, and he's calling Israel to follow God. And to make a choice. Yeah. Yeah, Matt, you can imagine him like being like, okay, look at the land. Look at the covenant. Look at the conditions. You know what's at stake here. You know you can say no to this, which is just interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's like, look at all the idols. Do they look better to you? Feel free to choose one of them. Yeah, go back to Abraham. You could you could worship you could, one of the go gods back to him. Egypt. Yep. Go marry with the Canaanites. This is your choice. Mm-hmm. But as for me and my house, we are going to choose to offer exclusive worship and trust to the Lord alone. And as the leader of Israel, that carries like a lot of weight. That's not just like political flourish Mm. it's like when the leader of a nation stakes his reputation on something like that's a big deal it's like no no no. 
I've seen the other options, and this is the only God worth serving. Yep. Follow me as mm-hmm. I do this. And you've seen it too, as you've seen him That's give exactly you victory right. after victory. And so they say, we will. We will serve the Lord. Far be it from us yes. that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods because God brought us out of Egypt. Right. Of course we're going like, to serve oh, him. Oh, great. You're tracking it. And you expect Joshua to say, awesome. Awesome. Well done. I'm so excited. You're on my team. Let's repeat those blessings one more time. Kick Ver- it up. Verse 19. Not what he says. But Joshua <laughs> said to the people, you are not able to serve the Lord. Because he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins if you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods. And he will turn you and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. You are not able to serve the Lord because he is a holy God. Yes. And here's a question for me. this, This is conditional. And seems non-conditional at the same time. Yes, same sentence. The very first thing he says, you are not able to serve the Lord your God because he's holy. Okay, period. Yes. And then it (laughs) says, if you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, he will turn and do you harm and consume you. Mm -hmm. Is he saying like, uh, you will not be able to serve God if you forsake him for other gods? Or is he saying, you will most certainly fail, period. Remember my warning. If it's like it seems weird to be like no no this is a guaranteed outcome and then follow it up with a condition like but but there's hope for you if you choose not mm. to do that you'll be okay it's hard that's a hard question I think one we need to remember that he is repeating the prophecies of Moses from Deuteronomy mm-hmm. Moses prophesied that Israel would rebel against God's laws and would follow after other gods once they entered the land and they would rebel and the land would become a curse to them and they would be kicked out. And so in a sense, he has every right from his spiritual forefather, and I think we can assume because it is a prophecy in Deuteronomy, that here Joshua is repeating that prophecy and saying, Mm -hmm. you cannot, you sinful people cannot perfectly serve a holy God. Those two things are impossible. But here's one little bit of hope for you. Because like, that's just true, right? Like sinful people cannot perfectly serve a holy God. But here's a bit of the conditional truth that's good news to them. And it's like, if... Is just, but just don't turn aside to the other idols. Mm-hmm. Just trust God. It's not going to be perfect. You're not able to do it, but just trust Him. It's not about your moral perfection. Right. It's about your trusting in the Lord over and above the gods of the land. Right. Yep. That's one. Yeah, that's helpful. Yeah, but I also think there is a bit of fatalism here, where it's like, it's, is, and we also know it plays out in their history. Israel does worship other gods, and that's their downfall. You know, we're going to read about that in Kings, like. It just yeah, they, it, it it all happens. It plays out. Moses's prophecy plays out. Yes. Israel will abandon God mm-hmm. until they're exiled and their land is taken from them. Mm-hmm. Like that's it's just true. Yep. Um, I think I was I was str- I think I had such strong categories for that in Moses's mm. speech that I was a little caught off guard when I read expecting the same thing for Joshua, but felt like it was just toned back so much. Mm. And so it made me almost wonder if like, there's a different purpose in Joshua's speech than in Moses's. Maybe like, was Joshua hopeful that maybe the disobedience was over? Yeah, maybe. And this was his, his way of like eliciting no, a stronger yes. Like yeah. you can't serve it. No, we will. We know the consequences. We yeah. will most certainly do it. So yeah. I was like kind of caught know. off guard by like, it wasn't as strong as I was expecting it. That's true. That's, That's true. And I like, was, and I think we, we do see some of that Condition, conditionality versus certainty play out in Israel's history. You have people who do accept the condition and meet the condition. 
You know, I think of like Josiah, mm-hmm. King Josiah, late in the kingdom of Israel. Yeah. And he meets the condition and he is saved mm-hmm. and his, his like, like he doesn't necessarily fall by the fate of the same kings. He's given a good verdict by God. That's right. Kings, but like- Israel as a whole still is uh, practicing spiritual idolatry and is killed. And so it's yeah. like, I think it might be also like a corporate versus an individual condition mm-hmm. where there's a certainty that Israel as a whole will be uh, drawn away by idols. But if you, yeah, like you, you as a, as a household, you as a person can choose. Mm, that's interesting because just, like, yeah. even in like judges, you have like, all the leaders are just terrible. Right. But then you have Ruth. Mm-hmm. In the time of the judges, you have this one faithful woman. Like, yep. that's interesting. Who says, yeah, but like, your God will be my God. Mm-hmm. And she moves from idol worship to Yahweh worship. Regardless, though, anyway. of how the conditionality, it's like, just flag it. It's like that tension between conditionality and unconditionality yeah. plays out throughout scripture. And isn't that the heart? We've talked about this before. That's the heart of the book of Joshua, where it's like, yeah, have they taken the whole land or have they not? Like, Will they be victorious in inheriting everything or will they not? Will they utterly drive out everyone or will they not? And it's like, yes and no. And like, it's, that yeah. is the tension mm-hmm. uh, that God, God, all of God's promises were fulfilled and they had peace on every side, but they didn't utterly drive out. Da, 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 da. And it's like, wait, did it or not? And it's like, right. that's the point. Yeah. Is that tension. And I don't know what to make of it, but that's, that's I mean, attention. we'll think about, I mean, there's more we could say about the, what's happening here, mm-hmm. but I'm also just thinking about the way conditionality and unconditionality play into the way the Lord, like Jesus interacts with us. Yes. Um, maybe we'll just say that. Well, let's flag that conditionality, unconditionality mm. in Jesus's covenant with us, Yeah. not just Joshua's covenant with the land or Israel's covenant mm-hmm. with the land, but let's mm-hmm. flag that. Let's finish the story. And okay. Go back yep. there. Yep. Um, so Joshua has his moment where he says, you're not going to obey uh, because if you worship foreign gods, it's going to be taken away from you. And then the people respond by saying, no, we will serve the Lord. Mm -hmm. They double down on their promise. And then Joshua said to the people, you are witnesses against yourself that you've chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses against ourselves, which goes back to the witness that was set up. The altar altar was called witness. Was called witness. And so... You have... And you have another... And they speak all of this around a rock. Mm-hmm. And so they say, okay, here's this rock. It's heard everything that we've said. Yeah. <laughs> it would be like us, this table that we, like, we sit at every week to yeah, do yeah. this podcast. Like, this this table's heard everything we've said. They said, this rock has heard everything we said. It stands as a witness against you. And so he wrote all the, all the laws and all the covenants that he gave them on this rock. And he's like, this is the witness stone. And so there are two stone objects, in a sense, that stand as a witness against Israel. Um, yeah. now yeah they have the witness on the Jordan River mm-hmm. and now they have this witness between the, the mountains mm-hmm. uh, blessing and cursing it's like you have said you remain faithful to the Lord and if you fail to do that your own words will, will condemn you will condemn you that's right like that's the, and that's kind of the way his speech ends mm-hmm. it's like your own words will condemn you period so Joshua sent his people away, every man to his inheritance. Yep. And they go in and you're like, that's kind of a somber note to leave on. Yeah. What's going to happen? Yeah. Your own words will condemn you. Go and take the land the Lord's already given you. Yeah. It's a great uh, season finale of a Netflix special. Yes. That you're waiting for yes, the next yes, season yes. to come out. You're like, what's going to happen? And you, and then and Judges then, finally drops. Yeah. You're like, oh, gosh. You're like, oh man, this is a dark comedy. It's a, <laughs> it's a, dark, it's a dark season too. <laughs> 
Um, and then after that, Joshua dies. Joshua dies. Yep. Uh, the people inherit their land. And then uh, strange little detail, Joseph's bones are brought up out of Egypt and then buried in Israel. Right. Which is uh, finally finishes the narrative, ten- like the, like the, like this pregnant hope at the end of Genesis, which was like, take my bones with you when you like, and bury them in Egypt or bury them in Israel. Yeah. And like, we've been waiting for that to happen. And that was kind of like the completion. We've, we've joked around that Joshua is kind of like the unnamed actual end of the Torah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because it, it actually feels like it ends the story. Right. Because yeah. that was, yeah, that's successful. Right. Joseph preserved the people of Israel in Egypt and his bones are finally buried and laid at rest with his people. Yep. The, the story, the story and hope of Genesis um, highlighted in Joseph's future hope in a promised land that God had guaranteed him. It finally lays to rest and there's rest. Yeah. And that's the point that there's rest mm-hmm. in the land, even for the dead. Mm-hmm. Like there's Shabbat, there's Sabbath, there's Sabbath. And then everyone that worked during this period of time also rests in mm-hmm. death. Eleazar, the son of Aaron died. Yep. They buried him. Phineas, his son died. Joseph, Josh was dead. So yep. every notable leader of Israel is now resting. Yep. The people are now going into their inheritance. And the last word that we hear is your own words will condemn you. <laughs> so it's like, well, that's a pretty like cliffhanger ending yeah. for the book of Judges. Uh, but from there then, how do we see the Lord as good news? Jesus as good news yeah. in the middle of this cliffhanger. Well, I mean, the first thing I think about is like, is it still true today that, and is it true for everyone? Maybe maybe we should ask this. Is it true for everybody without Jesus that you cannot serve a holy God? Like um, that's the that's the statement that's made yeah. of these people. Like we yeah. will serve him. You can't because he's holy and jealous and you're going to give your allegiances to other things. You're going to care about your job more than Yahweh. You're going to care about your children more than God. You're going to care about your car more than God. You know, you're going to have idols in your life. Yeah. And your allegiances are going to be divided and God wanting you to love the most lovable thing in the universe is going to be holy and rightly jealous over you. And his and anger will, will burn hot and he'll want your whole heart. Yeah, just part of it. That's right. And so all so no, because we have divided hearts, no one can perfectly serve a holy God. We've all turned aside to real or cultural idols. And how do you know that? Like, just like build that world out for me. Like, it's really obvious to me when you bow down to a gold idol in a yeah. temple, I'm serving another God or place a couple coins in the dish of a, a Buddhist temple. Like yep. I get that. I get that version of idolatry. Mm-hmm. When you say things like, I can't serve a holy God because I love my car more than the Lord. It's yep. like, is it really that fuzzy? It's like, do you know to yeah. what extent your love for your car, or your job, or your bank account? So in so uh, Martin Luther, his definition of idols in his in his I think it's a shorter catechism. I can't remember if it's shorter or longer catechism. He goes into a definition of idol by asking questions about it. So he's like, so what does an idol do for a person? Okay. And he's like, well, they go to it when they need something. So they look to it for their needs. We want rain on our land or we want my wife to get pregnant or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, we, it, it has our hope and our trust. So we put our hope in it that like, because I have this idol in my home, I can trust that things are going to go okay. And he goes into a few more, yeah, but that's yeah. enough to lay our groundwork. Yeah. And so it's like, we, ha- we ask the question like, what, before you were a Christian, <laughs> you know, 
what did you trust in? What do people trust in to get them the things that they need? I mean, politicians. Yep. Uh, doctors. Yep. Uh, science. Science. Yep. Oh, and none of these are bad things. Right. It's like, yes. like we have this category like, well, gods are fake. Yes. Like idols are fake. Well, in the Hebrew mind, those they are were real. Those are, that was technology. Yes. That's, that was technology. Like, yeah. That was the way in which you got the f- land to grow was yes. like, you didn't g- genetically modify crops. You prayed to the gods yes. and that's how you, they grew. So mm-hmm. it's like the way that we trust science is functionally the way that they trust trusted their gods. That's they right. didn't see that as weird or um, magical almost. It, yep. it was like, this is the way the world works. Regardless then, so it's like doctors, science. Uh, our paycheck. Our paycheck. Our ability. Um, like what do you trust for your happiness, your security, your provision, your contentment, your meaning, your purpose, you know? like. Mm-hmm. And the point is, if we were hearing the book of Joshua to us, it's like we could never say, oh, I don't trust those things. Right. And we would never be able to say like, I have only always 100% trusted God alone for all of those things. Yeah. No one could say that. Yeah. Our hearts are divided. And you might trust God some of the time. Mm-hmm. But even now, as a blood-bought son of Jesus, I still have divided allegiances. Mm-hmm. And I don't perfectly trust him all the time. And God is like passionately jealous for all yes. of our hearts. He wants my whole heart yeah. because he knows it will bring me the most joy mm-hmm. and because he deserves it. And because he's a better provider. Yes. It's like, yes. He wants good things for me. He wants good things for me. It's like, yes, trust your doctor, but Jesus is a better physician. Yeah. Like, yes, trust money to put money in your bank account, but Jesus has the wealth of heaven behind him. Like yep. there's like, those are really hard for us to separate because they're, they're so intricately connected with one another. It's yep. like, well, God's the one who provides my paycheck. Well, like, what, what's the difference? Yeah, am between... I supposed to dismantle my job? Yeah, like they like, dismantled well, idols. It's, a, but it's. A, I think what you're getting at, it's like it's a disposition of your heart. That's right. Where, which that's what he says. He's yeah. incline your heart, put away your idols, and incline your hearts to the Lord. That's what Joshua says. Then after they reaffirm the covenant, because what you worship is what you love, mm-hmm. and it's a heart issue. And so, if that's a rubric, then yeah. it's like you are not able to serve the Lord because He is a holy God and He is jealous passionate for my whole heart mm-hmm. man that's true it's true that's true yes i don't i don't yep. love god that way and the new testament would say that in fact we were we not only didn't love god wholeheartedly we were his enemies and yet the new testament says that while we were still his enemies jesus came and he was the altar for us. He died. And why for are us. we his enemies? Because we're worshiping other gods. That's right. Just like what we said here. It's That's like right. when We've... Israel worships other gods, they become God's enemies. They join themselves to the battle line that yep. God's already drawn. We're on the enemies. wrong side of the battle. Yes. And it's... yet Jesus comes and he dies for his enemies. So then the next verse says, He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. Mm-hmm. Joshua 24 19. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. Right. But then Jesus does? No, Jesus bears the punishment that he's talking about for our transgressions and our sins. Our sins are not just, oh, oh, it's fine. Never mind. They're forgiven. No, this covenant of, uh, of condemnation for those who don't love God with their full heart was fully vetted on Jesus. Like he got it all. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it's yeah. the, the, the 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 uh, the altar of cursing yes. or the 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 covenant of cursing that mm-hmm. was pronounced from Mount Ebal, mm-hmm. Jesus absorbs it all. That's right. He gets all the curses right. for disobedience, so that his people can experience all the blessings of Mount Gerizim. Yes, and so that means then that the cross now stands as a witness to us 
Mm. Whenever we feel shame, when we feel second class, we feel like our spiritual elitism has disqualified us. When we feel like we haven't upheld the covenant like we should, when we feel like we can't fully love God with our whole hearts, when we feel like we could never serve a holy God right. Or when we say, no, we'll serve that God. Right. And then our words are a witness against, against us, us. And we feel shame and condemnation. The cross is a witness for us. That's right. That there's no, therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's right. There is now no condemnation. Yeah, that's the witness now. The cross is our witness stone. The cross is our witness altar. That those far can come near. Those who have broken the covenant can uh, be restored. Like the cross stands as our witness. We can look to it as Israel was supposed to look to the altar and the stone as a witness. And we can know that we are okay. That we are included. That we are safe. That we belong. And that is the hope that we need at the end of the book of Joshua. (laughs) Yeah, because there's these both. Because there's these unconditional and conditional promises like still yes. lingering on the horizon. I will give you the land. Yep. How can how can people who I will can not never forgive you? Yeah, yeah. How, how can people who can never uphold an uncon uh, or a, uh, their conditional side of the covenant be given unconditional love? Only in Jesus, who upholds all the conditions of the covenant for us, and then is turning us into people who can serve a holy God. Yeah. Because what is he doing? He's making us holy like him. So yeah. how can how can we as sinful people serve a holy God? We can't, right? But now we can because he's making us holy by living in us with his spirit. Yeah, like we are conditionally holy. We mm-hmm. are holy sometimes, yes. maybe. Conditionally holy. Uh, God is unconditionally holy. Yes. He is holy all the time. Mm-hmm. We need to be made unconditionally holy. Yes. And so what does Jesus do? He fulfills the conditions of the commandments. Mm-hmm. He had a choice. Yes. He didn't have to go to the cross. No. Like he could have had 12 legions of angels come yes. down. Like, like <laughs> it was con- our salvation, our unconditional salvation, our unconditional inclusion is in God's land was conditioned on Jesus's obedience. Yes. And he does it. Yeah. He chooses to obey so that we might be blessed. Mm-hmm. He chooses to be cursed so that we might come into the land and experience unconditional blessing forever. Yeah. That's the book of Joshua. And that's the book of Joshua. Yeah. Thank you guys for being on this journey with us through this book. It's been really encouraging. Um, if you haven't yet, send in any oh. questions you have. What did you forget? Just the last line. Oh, sorry. Hold on. So so Joshua sent the people away, every man to his inheritance. Remember, Jesus' name is Joshua. Oh, yes. So at the end of the book of Joshua, you have Joshua sending people away to their inheritance with this looming threat. Uh Your words will judge you. Your words will condemn you. But Jesus sends us away to our inheritance, not with a word of judgment, but a word of no judgment. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Go, every one of you, into your inheritance. It cannot be taken. And therefore, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. I was just like... Yeah, that's good. We are sent forth into the world with a sentence of no judgment. There you go. Oh, that's good. Anyway, if you have questions, (laughs) uh, send them to podcast at spokengospel.com. If you have any any questions about Joshua, um, we'd love to hear them. And um, you can leave a review for the podcast, which helps us be discovered by other people. And we appreciate all you who have done that already. Thank you so much for being with us. And we will see you in judges. Thank you for listening to the Spoken Gospel Podcast. Spoken Gospel is a nonprofit that gives all its resources like this podcast away for free because of supporters like you. 
to help Spoken Gospel in our mission to speak the gospel out of every corner of Scripture and view all our free resources, visit SpokenGospel.com. Thank you.